All right. People making their way in. Let's, let's open up in a word of prayer this morning and we'll get started in Daniel. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We thank you so much, Lord, for another opportunity that we have to be uh, together as a body of believers, to study your word, to worship, to praise you, Lord. And, and we just thank you for the times that we can gather together. Thank you, Lord, for our involvement in each other's lives and pray, Lord, that we would be an encouragement and, uh, to each other, Lord, and that we would serve one another when we're together. We thank you, Lord, for this week as we look forward to celebrating Christmas um, uh, next weekend, Lord. We, we look forward to this time. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son, um, sending him to earth uh, for us to die on the cross for our sins. We praise you and thank you for that gift, Lord, that you gave us. And we pray, Lord, that we would not lose our focus on you this week, Lord, during um, just all the preparations and, and gatherings that we have uh, to look forward to. Lord, we just thank you for our study in Daniel. Thank you for the time that we can study your word. We thank you for this book. We thank you for uh, using the man Daniel, Lord, to bring your word to us. And we just look forward to spending more time uh, reading about and studying uh, the things that you communicated to us through him. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are back in Daniel chapter 8 this morning, if you'll turn there with me. In our last study, which was a long time ago, I don't even know how many weeks it was, but I think it was the end of October was the last time we were in Daniel. Um, but in that study, we tackled the easy part of Daniel chapter 8, um, verses 1 through 8. And so since it's been a while since we've been in that section, I want to just read um, those verses again this morning so that we have them fresh in our minds. So in Daniel 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And so we saw these verses in our last study, and believe it or not, after reading them, you may not think this, but believe it or not, those are relatively straightforward. Daniel is receiving a vision in the third year of Belshazzar. And while Daniel himself is still in Babylon, still in, uh, safe in his palace, in his vision he finds himself in a different palace next to a canal. In the future capital city of the, Mesio, of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the city of Susa. And while there, he sees a ram standing alone by this canal, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And the ram has, as most rams do, two horns. But there is something unique about this ram's horns that catches Daniel's attention. One horn came up after the other one, which also grew to be stronger and more prominent than the other one. And just like the lopsided bear that we saw back in our study in chapter 7, this larger horn represented the Persian portion of the Medo-Persian Empire. As Daniel is contemplating this ram before him, a male goat comes flying in from the east at a great speed, as indicated by the roadrunner blur, uh, spinning blur that he has for legs, right? We talked about everybody's that's... I know that's a dated example these days, but... What's that? Yeah, exactly. We get it. We all get it, right? Now, this, this goat has something different about it as well. It's coming in fast. Um, but this goat has one prominent horn that's right between the eyes. And this goat represents the Greek empire led by the military mastermind of Alexander the Great. He came in swiftly... And in the span of 10 years, he completely trampled down the Medo-Persian Empire and took over the whole known world at the time. Alexander, a military genius, a very strong leader, had the same problem that we've seen other strong leaders have in the chapters that we've studied in Daniel, and that is that he bought into his own press. He declared himself to be divine, He held banquets in his own honor to feed into his own divine mythology. He magnified himself greatly, letting his pride get the best of him right up until the day that he drank himself to death in a palace in Babylon at the age of 33. And I find it interesting that it was in Babylon. It could very well have been the same Babylon that Daniel was in when he saw this vision. But upon his death... His generals proceeded to fight over his kingdom for about the next 20 years. And Alexander's son was too young to rule, because, you know, usually after a leader dies, maybe his son would take over for him. But Alexander's son was too young to rule, and he was murdered before he could ever take the throne. So all the territory that Alexander had conquered was eventually split split up into four main sections under the control of four of his generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. If we can get the next slide up there. Okay, now this slide is not the one that I wanted to show you, but I wanted to put this one in here because as I was looking for pictures to put in, 
I came across this slide unaltered about Daniel chapter 8. And if you notice, it's a picture of shrimp. I have no idea why anybody would make a slide with a picture of shrimp on it, but I thought it was so interesting that I would show it to you all to find out that (laughs) other people have very interesting ideas when it comes to Daniel chapter 8. Okay, but if we can go to the next slide now. (laughs) Okay, this is the one that I wanted to actually show you here. So these are the the areas and the four horns, um, and I have no idea if that's what Daniel actually saw, but it was something close to that, right? Four horns on the goat, and those are basically the areas that the kingdom was divided up into there. So all this was seen by Daniel in the vision, represented by this goat defeating this ram and having uh, its great horn broken and being replaced by four other horns, four weaker horns that rose up in its place. So far in the first eight verses, that's what Daniel has seen, and that's what we saw back um, when we looked at those first eight verses in our last study. So in a nutshell, in the last few minutes, I just told you all that we went over in our last lesson covering those first eight verses. So we're all caught up. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the last part of the vision that Daniel has, uh, leading right up to the interpretation of it in verse 15. We're not going to finish Daniel 8 this morning. We'll save that for next week. But as we mentioned in our last study, the man Alexander was a historical figure. He was a man who really existed and who really conquered nations, and he really tried to establish himself as a deity, as someone who was divine. And that is without question. There isn't anyone who has any common sense from an historical standpoint that would disagree with the fact that Alexander the Great existed and that he, he conquered these lands and, and did all that we know that he did. However, we also talked about the fact that Alexander was also representative, a representative of another ruler, a final ruler that the world will ever know. And that is the Antichrist, the man who that we studied to a certain extent when we were going through chapter 7. How is Alexander the Great representative of the Antichrist? Well, mostly from a militaristic standpoint. The Antichrist is going to be a military strategist or a military genius, if you will, just like Alexander was. The book of Revelation in the 13th chapter of Revelation talks about the Antichrist as one who is going to be worshipped as a god. And those um, that worship him will say, it says in Revelation 13.4, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? He will have the ability, the supernatural authority to overcome all that oppose him. He will be unmatched when it comes to warfare in his day. A little later in Revelation 13, it says this about him in verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He will be able to make war with the saints, and he will have the entire world on his side when he does this. His military might will be unparalleled, just like Alexander's military might was unparalleled in his day. 
And therefore, we can say that Alexander was a type of Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist, but he was a type of Antichrist. He held several characteristics that will be true of the Antichrist who will rule at the end of the age. Well, there's another type of Antichrist that Daniel sees next in this vision that we're going to look at in our study today. And that man comes up in verse 9, starting in verse 9. The events of verse 9 take place about 150 years after Alexander's death in 323 B.C. And keep in mind that all of this will be about 350 years after Daniel is seeing all of this. So Daniel's vision stretches a long ways into the future. You think 350 years, from a historical standpoint, you think 350 years is a drop in the bucket. But if you think of 350 years, that's a long time. Think of what happened 350 years ago. Most of us don't remember that. I mean, none of us remember that, right? But beginning in verse 9, we're going to see a horn rise, another horn. And out of the four horns that we've already seen, the four horns, and this horn will represent a man by the name of Antiochus, who will also be representative or a type of the Antichrist. And his very existence will then lead into a discussion regarding the Antichrist himself at the end of the chapter. Now we know that the Antichrist is going to be the final world ruler. We've talked about that before. Um, The culmination of all the persecution that is brought against Israel. He's the one that we primarily focus on when we look at this period of time of Gentile domination, right? The times of the Gentiles. But he's not the only one. During this time of Gentile domination, there will be many rulers to arise who will cause the nation of Israel much harm, much persecution, much tribulation. Some we've seen throughout history. Some are probably yet to come. We know at least one is. We know at least the Antichrist is still yet to come. But there are some who uh, have pointed out the similarities between someone like Adolf Hitler and the Antichrist. Was he possibly a type of Antichrist? Well, certainly some of the characteristics are there. Now again, like Alexander, we know for certain that he was not the Antichrist. How do we know that? Well, because he's gone, right? Adolf Hitler's gone off the scene. Um, And the final kingdom has not yet arrived. Rome has not yet been revived. He's not a part of that. But was he a type of Antichrist? Well, that may be. It's impossible to say from a biblical standpoint because we're not told. But like I said, certainly a lot of the characteristics of his fit the mold. But the point I'm trying to make is the fact that there are men throughout history, even men who are presented to Daniel in this vision, that will represent or be a type of the final ruler who is to come, of the final Antichrist, it shouldn't surprise us that there are men like this. Because this time of Gentile domination over Israel is a long period of time, right? There's a lot of things that will happen during this period of time. And in this chapter, in this vision that Daniel's given, we're going to see two such men, one we've already looked at. So as with many passages in Daniel, you'll find it easy to believe that there are a great many controversies and differences of opinion on a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And while I will point out some of the different opinions at times, for the most part, I'm going to stick to uh, what I consider to be the correct way to interpret this section of Scripture, and I'll give my reasons 
why um, as we go through this as well. Otherwise, we could spend three or four more weeks on this one chapter, and nobody really wants to do that. So we're not going to do that. So let's meet the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 and start with that. Look at verse 9. And out of one of them came, a forth, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So we start off here with a phrase, out of one of them. One of whom? First question, right? Well, referring back to verse 8, this is out of the four horns. The four horns that rose up after the great horn was broken. It is one of these four horns that's in view here. So out of one of these four, a rather small horn grew. So another horn comes out of one of the four remaining horns that came after Alexander was off the scene. Now this should sound familiar. Have, we've seen a reference to a small horn before, haven't we? If you remember the term small horn. Back in chapter 7, there was a small horn that came up out of the fourth beast and pushed out three other horns and took their place, if you remember our study in that. So who was that horn? Well, back in chapter 7, we talked about that little horn. That was the Antichrist. Now, who is this horn? Well, first I'll tell you who it's not. This is not the Antichrist. The little horn in chapter 7 and the small horn in chapter 8, they're not the same horn. Many people make that correlation. There's a little horn referenced here. There's a little horn in the next chapter. That must be the same horn. But they're not the same horn. Don't make that mistake. How do we know that they're not the same horn? Well, we need to keep in mind the context of what we're seeing here. The little horn in chapter 7 grew out of what? It grew out of the fourth beast. And who was the fourth beast? The fourth beast was the Roman Empire. And we've spent considerable time explaining that the little horn that grows out of Rome has not yet grown even today. That's still something that's yet future to us. And will actually come forth during the revived phase of the Roman Empire. So a future event. Now in chapter 8, where does this horn come from? Well, if you follow along with the vision and with the vision's interpretation, which we did last week, we see that this comes out of the Greek Empire. He comes up out of one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire that took control after Alexander died. And as we'll see, he is an historical figure one that already lived and died. And so, yes, there is a little horn in both chapter 7 and in chapter 8, but no, they are not the same horn. They are not the same man being referenced. There are similarities, but there are also differences, and the differences make it impossible for them to be the same person. Oh, we've got the next slide up, so. So there's the little horn. So now in chapter 8, where does this horn come from? Uh, he comes from one of, the, one of the four horns. He comes up with one out of, out of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. So let's see. Oh, lost my place. Hold on a second. So what will this horn do? There we are. Well, first of all, this horn grows exceedingly great. In other words, he's going to start off small, and he's going to become very important. There is little doubt in almost every 
conservative commentator's mind that the man in view here is the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty. So he's off of the branch of, the, of Seleucus there. The portion of the Greek empire that was ruled by Alexander's general Seleucus. Now this man's name or title, if you will, was Antiochus, well his name was Antiochus, but he was Antiochus IV. If you look through the history, there are other Antiochuses, so you'll want to focus on Antiochus IV, who was also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a word meaning the illustrious one. However, to give you some idea of where this is all going to end up taking us, the people in his day some of his enemies, uh, people that would talk behind his back, if you will, gave him the nickname Epimenes instead of Epiphanes instead. And Epimenes means the mad one or the madman. So that's how they referred to um, Antiochus. Antiochus came into power in September um, 175 BC and ruled until November 164 BC. He, assume, he assumed the throne even though it didn't belong to him. He didn't really have the right to rule. His brother was the one that was supposed to take over um, the throne, but his brother was murdered. And the person who was next in line to him was a captive in Rome at the time, so Antiochus wasn't even the next one after his brother. So there was someone else that was supposed to be a ruler, but he was a captive in Rome at the time. So what does this mean? It means that Antiochus then was able to basically weasel his way onto the throne and become uh, king. And that's what he did. This insignificant man, one who should not have been king, became king through treachery and deceit. And that's how this man became the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. And so what we have is a rather small horn that grew exceedingly great. So he gets onto the throne and he calls himself the illustrious one. Then what does he do? Well, in the verse, it says he goes toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. The first major battle that Antiochus took upon himself was to attack Egypt, an area that was held by the Ptolemies. He actually did this several times with differing results. But that was a battle that he fought to the south. So he would have to go south to attack Egypt. From there, he went into Mesopotamia, which would have been to the east. But his main conflict and what he is most known for was his dealings with the people of Israel. Now, what do you suppose that Daniel would call the beautiful land? Be the land of Israel, right? The pleasant land um, is another name that can be translated here. But the land of Canaan, the, the physical nation of Israel. Now, the time period that we're dealing with here is during what is called the intertestamental period of time, when all these events take place. And this would be the period between the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. So we really don't have much that um, was revealed by God during this time frame. The Old Testament record stops around 400 BC, and the New Testament picks up after the birth of Christ in the first century AD. So the 400 or so years between the two are what we call this intertestamental period because we have, again, no biblical records of what transpired during this time. 
However, that's not to say that we don't have historical records that are going on during this time or that we don't have anything to go on at all to find out what exactly happened in this time period. Anyone that grew up in the Catholic Church is aware of the apocryphal books, which by and large deal with this time period. Um, now, these books are not inspired writings of God, so they are not Scripture, and we don't treat them as Scripture. But treating them like any other history book, we can get some insight into what happened during this intertestamental period. Why do I bring this up? Well, because the majority of information that we have on Antiochus Epiphanes comes from the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. History gives us quite a picture of this man, Antiochus IV. And the main reason why he spent his time with the Jews in Canaan was because of his own frustrations with Egypt. Remember I told you that he attacked Egypt as one of the first things that he did. He would go down to fight in Egypt, and things wouldn't work out very well for him there. It took him a while before he was able to make any headway in Egypt. So he would go into Egypt, he would be frustrated, he would have to retreat from Egypt, and he would retreat back through Palestine, and he would take out his frustrations on the people in Palestine, the Jews. Kind of like somebody going to work, getting frustrated, coming home, and kicking the dog, right? That's kind of what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Well, Antiochus, having taken over the city of Jerusalem by force, set himself up as the king of Israel, which makes sense because Israel was really controlled by the Seleucids at this time anyway, so in a sense, he, he was the king of Israel. But really, it's what he did while ruling that was especially cruel and unusual. Now, keep in mind, the Jews were back in the land of Palestine at this time that we're talking about here, right? I mean, in Daniel's day, right, when Daniel gets this vision, they're captives in Babylon. But by this time, at this part of the vision, they are back in the land. So this was several hundred years after Daniel's writing. They're no longer captives. They had made their way back to the land. And, in, and so what Antiochus was doing was all in the land. Now, during this time... It was common for rulers during this entire ancient period here, it would be common for rulers to let their subjects who, who remained in their native lands basically do what, what they wanted as far as, it, as religious practices go. They would allow them to keep that aspect of their culture as a way basically to have peace, keep their subject happy and give them less reason to revolt, right? Because if you take over a people and you leave them there and you, you try to completely destroy their culture, then there's, there's more, they're more apt to rebel. So a lot of leaders would let them do their own thing, and they'd be, oh, this isn't so bad. But Antiochus was bound and determined to make the Jews follow the Greek culture, with no regard for their own culture or worship practices. The Greeks under Alexander were actually known for doing this as well. So Antiochus was kind of following along with what Alexander had done as well. And that was called the process of Hellenization, if you've ever heard that term, Hellenization, where they would make their conquered territories take on all aspects of the Greek way of life. So Antiochus became a stickler for this with Israel. In order to accomplish this, he sets up his own man as the high priest. He comes in and says, okay, I'm going to set up this man, Jason, as the high priest. 
And you might realize Jason was not a Jewish name. He was a very Greek name. And there are differences of opinion on who this man Jason actually was, where he came from, but it really comes down to the fact that he was either he was either a Greek whom Antiochus set up as the high priest in God's temple, which obviously would not be good, or he was a Jew who had already been Hellenized and had adopted the Greek culture, even to the point of taking on a Greek name and changing his name to Jason. And so he was someone who had wholeheartedly uh, been brought into the Greek system. So this was already a, uh, a problem in the land at the time. Many of the people had already taken a lot of the Greek culture to heart, which really isn't surprising if you think about Israel and you think about Israel's history, um, because throughout the Old Testament, there are examples of the Jews taking the religions uh, and the cultural practices of those around them as their own. You look through the book of Judges, for instance, um, and you see that all throughout there. And they're rebuked and disciplined time and time again for doing that exact thing. So the Jews were almost a sponge in that regard throughout their history of of adopting other cultures. But the difference here is that instead of individuals making bad choices for themselves, Antiochus comes in and makes this mandatory for all of his people. For example, Jason the high priest built a sports arena next to the temple. The temple was on a hill. The arena was built in the valley, just on the other side of the Holy of Holies. So what's wrong with a little physical recreation? What's wrong with that? Hey, we can all go down to the the Y and, and work out, right? Well, the problem was the way that the Greeks did things. If you know anything about the Greeks, you know that they were very fond of their games. They were very fond of their putting on their um, competitions. And when the Greeks participated in their games, they would participate without stitches of clothing. Nothing. Wearing nothing but a slight covering of oil. Well, to the Jews and to God, this was seen as an affront. And, and the reason that it was put in that location was most likely to dishonor God and to dishonor the temple especially when the priests of the temple were required to participate again completely naked in these games. And when the high priest of God's temple was the one organizing and condoning these games, this would come off to the people as this is part of temple worship. But the priests are involved. The, priest, the high priest is the one organizing these games. This is part of worship of God. So the Jewish people start buying into this and participating in some of the games as well and sponging again off of the Greek culture. So that was just one sign of the trouble. But it didn't stop there. That wasn't the only thing that they did. Antiochus decides that a law was going to be handed down that would make circumcision illegal. Why? Well, circumcision was the Greek thing to do. So the Jews can't do it either. This was absolutely an affront to God. No one was allowed to circumcise their child. The children were not allowed to be circumcised. This was absolutely an affront. God had personally commanded Abraham to circumcise the male children on the eighth day. And now here comes Antiochus Epiphanes. He's going to supersede God's command in this matter. 
Now, what about a little civil disobedience, right? It sounds like something that they could say, well, we'll just go ahead and do it anyway and we won't tell anybody. Well, breaking this law was not a small matter. This was not a misdemeanor. This was not a, oh, if someone finds out, you pay your fine and you're done with it. This was a capital offense. If this command was violated, the penalty was death for both the mother and the child. The child would be killed. His body would then be hung around the mother's neck, and the mother would be paraded through the city, and they would throw her to death over a cliff. That was the choice that faithful Jews were facing under Antiochus Epiphanes. These were just some of the things that the Jewish people were facing during this time. And there were also changes to dietary laws and other aspects of worship, which we'll get into in a minute, that they could no longer do as well. And so in verse 10, we start to see even more about what this man was doing here. So in verse 10, it says, And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Again, keep in mind that this is within Daniel's vision, right? He sees this horn that has already grown great, and it has reached out in three different directions to take action. Now we see it reaching upward, skyward. Host of heaven, this would be a reference to the stars. There are a number of places in the Old Testament where host of heaven refers to the stars. Celestial bodies, if you will. And that's what Daniel is seeing here. This horn is growing up to the, uh, growing up to the stars of the sky. It is reaching them and causing them to fall to the earth and it is trampling them down. And the idea here is that this horn is knocking these stars down and destroying them and crushing them. Now, a lot is made out of this verse. It doesn't mean that something is being removed from heaven itself or taken from glory and somehow destroyed or even being removed from God's presence. Those are some of the things that that people go to with this. Daniel is not seeing these things happening on earth and then looking... um, into an actual picture in heaven. Now remember, this is a visual depiction of something seen as being in the sky, being trampled and crushed by what this horn represents. Now we've already made it clear that the horn represents Antiochus Epiphany. So the question is, what are these stars or this host of heaven that he is throwing down and trampling? What does this represent? Well, the short answer is that these are believing Jews. Jews that remain faithful to the Lord. So how do we know that these are Jews being referenced here? Well, this would not be the first or only time that stars would be used to refer to the Jews or to faithful Jews. Turn with me over to the book of Genesis. We'll look at a few passages of this. In Genesis, we first get a glimpse of this association here. Genesis 15 Abraham's lamenting the fact that his only heir is Eliezer of Damascus, someone who was born in his house, uh, who's not his own son. But God reassures him that he will have actual descendants. And so in Genesis 15, we look at verse 5, it says, And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So in Genesis 15, God tells Abram 
that his descendants shall be as numerable as the stars. He's using it as a reference to how many descendants he will be. But he's using, he's pointing out the stars to it in order to reference this. Now later on in chapter 22, after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son to the Lord, which of course God stopped him from doing, he reassures him again. So in Genesis 22, verse 16, it says, And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. So once again, God uses the stars as a reference for the number of descendants that Abraham will have. In chapter 26, a little bit later in this chapter, Abraham has died, and God is speaking to his son Isaac. But he reassures him that what was promised to Abraham is still in effect. So in Genesis 26, verse 3, it says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." So once again, the descendants of Abraham are compared to the stars of heaven, right? This is how many descendants you will have, and he uses the reference of the stars of heaven. So the descendants of Abraham are who, right? They're the Jews. They're the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. So clearly, or so, so early on, when God is promising the descendants to both Abraham and Isaac, he even reiterates it to Isaac, he uses the stars as an example for them in referring to their total number. Too numerous to count. So the Jews would have been very familiar with this reference. The idea of the stars of heaven, right? Our descendants, the descendants of Abraham are going to be like the stars of heaven. Now, turn back to Daniel, but make your way to Daniel chapter 12. And we'll skip ahead just a little bit. In chapter 12, we have the time of the end, the time of the tribulation and beyond. So look with me at verse 1 of Daniel 12. There it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So this is after the tribulation period that we're talking about here. And the reference here is to Daniel's people, the Jews, the true Israel, the ones who have truly believed and whose names are found written in the book of life. They are the ones who will be rescued. Not everyone who is physically born of Abraham, but those who have, chosen, who have been chosen by God and truly believed in his plan of salvation. Right? Those are the true Israel. Now he goes on in verse 2, and it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this is the resurrection of Old Testament saints, as well as the resurrection of the ungodly. The Old Testament will be raised to eternal life, to live in glorified bodies, which we see next. Verse 3, 
And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. So once again, what do we have? We have believing Jews shining like stars. Here they will be in glory. The reference is used again. So the stars being used for believing Israel is not an uncommon theme in Scripture. In fact, it's a pretty familiar theme. Just for the sake of completeness, we'll look at one more reference, and that's in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. In Revelation 12 here we see a woman who represents the nation of Israel. And look at what it says in verse 1 of Revelation 12. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. In this passage here, the woman represents Israel. How do we know that she represents Israel? Well, context again. In the next verse, she's with child, and she gives birth to that that child down in verse 5, who it says is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and is caught up to God and to his throne. That child is the Messiah. It's Christ. So this woman is Israel, from whom comes the Messiah. Jesus came into the world through Israel. And she has what on her head? Back at the very end of verse 1. She has a crown containing 12 stars, which is a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. So once again, even as we come forward all the way into Revelation, consistent theme in Scripture, we see the people of Israel represented or referred to by the concept of stars. Now, turn back to chapter 8, and we'll skip ahead to verse 24. Um, which is down into some of the interpretation, which to me removes any doubt, any shadow of a doubt about who this is referring to. It says in verse 24, And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Now, when we get to this verse later on, we'll get to this verse next week, we'll see that this does not only refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, but this will also have reference to Antichrist and the time of the tribulation. But the effect of his power and his might will be the same. In both cases, both men will be in the business of destroying, it says, the holy people. They will have the power to destroy anyone, but the holy people of God are the main enemy. We saw that already when we were studying through chapter 7 with reference to the Antichrist and the way in which he will wage war against and wear down the saints of God. And that was certainly the case with Antiochus Epiphanes. He turned his wrath and his might against the people of God with a vengeance. During his reign, he ended up making it illegal to not only follow the law of God, but he ordered all copies of the law to be destroyed, burned, torn up. And anyone found practicing the law was subject to death. Now, to their credit, many of the Jews did rebel against this. But the end result of that was wholesale slaughter. There was a mass execution of people at one point, 
In time, we're told that he killed as many as 80,000 Jews. And another 40,000 more were sold into slavery. So with respect to the people of God, Antiochus was a monster. And that's really no other way to describe him. He was an absolute monster. But as bad as that is, and and it's absolutely horrible, that's not even the worst of what he did. Look at verse 11. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. The host of heaven, they are the believing Jews. Who would be their commander? God. This is God talking about their Lord who's in in view here. Antiochus not only defiled and attacked and waged war against the people of God, but he set himself up to be God. Right? That's what he was doing. He was supplanting God with himself. And we've seen the same attitude how many countless times already. The horn magnified itself to be equal with God. Nebuchadnezzar just constructed a statue to his own greatness and commanded that everyone must bow down to worship it, thus worshiping him. Right? Belshazzar takes the vessels that had been used in the worship of the temple of God and used them in open mockery of him in a drunken party. King Darius declared it illegal to bow down and worship any god other than himself. We just looked at Alexander the Great, who during his, his time also declared himself to be a god, magnifying himself exceedingly. Yes, just like we've seen before, Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be deity. There are coins in existence. If you want to switch to the last slide. There are coins that exist that show that Antiochus had declared himself not only the illustrious one, which we mentioned before, but the God-king as well. This coin, the, the writing over there on the the right side, the the right one, reads it, King Antiochus, God manifest, bearing victory. That's what was actually printed on his coins. Not surprising, considering the attitudes that we've seen before in most of these men, but he prints these coins declaring himself to be God. Anytime you have to do a transaction, you're handing out God Antiochus's coin. While it's true that he magnified himself in name with God, it's even more pronounced in his actions and what he did. The verse states, it removed the regular sacrifice from him. Don't worship God. You can't sacrifice to God. You're worshiping me. Along with making it illegal to follow after the Mosaic law, Antiochus removed the sacrificial system from the temple. And not only did he remove it, But he defiled it. It wasn't bad enough that he just shut down the altar. He defiled it. He brought in pigs to be slaughtered and sacrificed on the altar of the temple and then forced the priests to eat the meat and drink the blood of those pigs, neither of which were permitted under the Mosaic law. He established worship to the god Zeus along with others within the temple and then set up temple prostitution within the temple chambers. The verse 11 continues, the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. It was utterly disgraced. Antiochus was truly a horrible, 
despicable man who by his actions set himself up as equal with God. Taking away sacrifice that God had established, tearing up and burning the law that he had been given, or that he had given, using the elements of God's temple to satisfy his own sick and perverse arrogance. This was the man whom Daniel was seeing in his vision. Daniel didn't know his name, but we knew. Now we have to ask, why did God allow this to go on? I mean, when Belshazzar took vessels from God's temple and used them the way that he used them in his party, he doesn't live out the night, right? Why was Antiochus allowed to do this? And over an extended period of time. The answer lies in verse 12. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. On account of transgression, sin. This is a sin problem. This verse sums up this entire part of the vision with the little horn. On account of the sins of Israel, all of this comes about. The reference to the host, once again, is Israel being given over to the horn. They have been given into his grasp by God because of their sin. Don't lose sight of the fact that that's what this whole time period that we're studying is about. This whole times of the Gentiles. The punishment, the discipline of Israel. God does not cause the wicked actions of this man to occur, but he does allow them to happen. He allows his people to be given into his hands. And he gives the nation over to this man. Just as he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and take Judah captive, which we saw all the way back in the first verses of Daniel. Just like he had allowed Israel to be taken captive by Assyria a hundred years before that. It's because of transgression, because of their sin against God. All that Israel holds dear at this time will be affected by this. It will be taken away. The sacrifice, the truth of God's word, and in their place, the will of Antiochus Epiphanes will grow and prosper, and he will do whatever he wants to do for this period of time. Well, how long is this time? How long will he, is he allowed to do this? We see that in the next two verses. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. With Daniel's vision, within Daniel's vision, there are at least two more characters that show up at this point. Probably to uh, directly answer the question that Daniel must have been thinking. How long can this go on? How much time does he have to do this? Well, these two angels that show up, uh, these are two angels that show up in Daniel's vision that answer Daniel's question by talking to one another. They're not even really directly talking to Daniel. They're just talking to one another in the vision and Daniel sees this. How long can something like this be allowed to go on? How long will the sacrifice uh, be taken away and Antiochus allowed to misuse the temple in this manner? It gives the length of time as 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's the time period that's given here. It's amazing how precise this number is. 
It's not a simple number. It's not a nice round figure. It doesn't really fit with other numbers that we see in Scripture. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Some people try to make it fit, right? They, they try to make it fit with the seven-year tribulation, for instance, or the second half of the tribulation, the three and a half years. 2,300 days is just less than six and a half years, but that's not seven years. And so they do some math and they say, well, okay, it says evenings and mornings. And so really, we're talking about 1,150 days, not 2,300 days. It's, it's an evening and a morning, then you have to split that in half. But that's not seven years either. And that's not three and a half years, which is another significant number in the tribulation, right? The, the half point of the tribulation. Other parts of Scripture make it clear that Half of the tribulation is 1,260 days. So either way you cut it, it's not going to match up with tribulation timing. And I'm sure that that's on purpose. This is not to be confused with that time. Now, I will also point out something else, because this may be something that people have heard before. Um, This length of time is also seen as something that the Seventh-day Adventists use as very significant. Um, because they take this verse and they turn the days into years, and this is part of what they use to come up with their original timeline of Christ returning in 1844, which, in case you didn't know, he didn't come back then. That, did, that didn't happen. Now, I don't know all the details about how they reached their conclusions or about what they say is or was significant about 1844 or what they say now, Uh, that the 2,300 years came and went over 150 years ago. But I just want you to be aware that this is a significant number to them, and they do use this in their calculations as well. But they turned it into years instead of days. So, but that's, that's not where we're going with that. If this is not the tribulation, and it's not the years of Christ's return, then what is this time referring to? Well, I believe this is a reference to the time that Antiochus is allowed to commit these atrocities in Israel. At the end of Antiochus's time, there was a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. And the nation of Israel was able to drive the Greeks out of Jerusalem and out of the temple and restore the temple and the sacrifices to what they were supposed to be. Historians know the date of the revolt and when that happened as December 25th, 165 BC. Now, 2,300 days prior to that would have been September 6th, 171 BC. Now, do you know what happened that day? Because if you do, tell me, because I don't know, and nobody else knows what happened that day. So that's kind of a mystery. Historians don't know of anything significant that happened on that day in history. Um, So we just don't know anything about it. But that doesn't mean that that's not an important date. It just means that we haven't found out what the significance of it is. Um, But I will say this, God doesn't mess up his numbers. If 2,300 days prior to the day the temple was cleansed was September 6, 171 B.C., then I have no problem believing that something significant happened that day. We just don't have record of it. And we do know from history that the atrocities against Israel did begin in 171 B.C. up until sometime in that year, and I'm willing to bet it was somewhere around September 6th. But until that time, there was peace between the Jews and the Seleucids, but that all ended in 171 BC. So the timing is close, we just don't have all the details of that. 
But over the next six years, Antiochus was allowed to commit these atrocities against Israel, um, and again, being in that six-year range. Um, so anyway, so that's the number 2,300. But we're going to end there for today. We're about out of time anyway. Remarkable, though, how God's plan works all these things out. Antiochus Epiphanes was a vile man. He was a wicked man. Alexander the Great was a strategic military genius, but also a pretty wicked man. God allowed both of these men to rule the known world and to have dominion over Jerusalem and over God's people. In their own way, they are both great and mighty men, and yet they are but a shadow of the ruler who will end the, uh, the dominion of man on earth. And we'll see that in our next study. As terrible as Antiochus was, the Antichrist is going to be worse. Greater persecution of God's people, more atrocities, more blasphemies, and in the end he will set himself up to wage war against God himself as he assembles his armies in the fields of Megiddo. And through it all, there is never any question that God will prevail. That's the one thing that we always have to remember when we read about all these things and, and, and Antichrist and even Satan himself who sets himself up. There's never any question of who wins these, these fights, these battles. God wins. There are many things that God allows to happen around us in the world, things that we often don't understand, but in the end we know that the ultimate outcome will be that the saints end up in glory and the unrighteous will pay for their own transgressions. And we'll finish up chapter 8 next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to study your word once again. We thank you for the truth uh, that the book of Daniel has for us. And Lord, we just give you praise for uh, just being able to study it. We thank you, Lord, for these examples that we have in the past, uh, the things that we know came to pass that you promised to Daniel that we can see through history, Lord that they did come to pass, and we know how they came to pass, and we look forward to studying things that um, occur uh, yet future to us. We just give you praise for that, Lord. We thank you for the truth that you reveal to us of, of your plans and how things uh, will go in the future, and we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, study these things um, in a way that glorifies you. Thank you, Lord, once again for our time. We pray that you would be with us as we worship in the next hour, and pray, Lord, that it would be a time that would glorify and honor you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.